Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. So I'm doing a New York Times crossword puzzle the other day, and it asked me for a four-letter word for totally focused. What is it? Can you guess? Wrapped is the answer. As in rapt attention. So enthralled by something that the rest of the world seems to disappear, and we're captivated by that one thing. As we focus on it, it transports us. It takes us away which is the verbal root of the word rapt, which is why raptors, those birds that carry away creatures in their talons, are called raptors, and also, of course, where we get the word rapture, as in spiritual rapture, a state of bliss, perhaps, oneness, where we lose ourselves. But here's what's interesting. We hear the word rapture and we think of some kind of out-there state, right? And of course, the word does mean to take us away, but it also means... Totally focused. So what is the state in which we are both transported and totally focused at the same time, where we get a universal view and a very specific view both at once? Have you felt it, that lucid zone of consciousness? Exhausted after hours of bicycling or dancing or singing the divine name and ritual perhaps? And there's a flood of rapture and we're taken beyond, and yet we're gifted with a kind of one-pointed vision at the same time. Have you felt anything like it? This double meaning of rapt and rapture simply and quickly gets at a very profound point. The trance state is a state of sublime focus. It's not a drug-induced la-la land, what we're talking about here, or spaced out, or psychotic, or hallucinating, or an illusion. It is primal focus, The type of focus necessary to persist during a vision quest, or three days of running after a herd, all the while consciously sinking the body's movements to be in a state of fluid alignment to the movements of the animal. This state of rapt attention, of what you could call deep, immersive mindfulness, absorptive mindfulness, mindfulness in which the subject disappears and what remains is a blissful, pulsing focus, has been extremely valuable to human beings for a very long time, which is why nearly all human ritual aims at it. I just got Roberto Colasso's book, The Celestial Hunter, which I've been excited to read since I first read the announcement of its release. He encapsulates what I'm talking about here in relation to the Paleolithic hunt. Quote, The prey has to be brought into focus. The isolating gaze reduces the field of vision to one point. It is a knowledge that proceeds through successive gaps, carving figures out from a background. It's simple. The state of rapt attention and simultaneous rapture was a necessity for hunting, and hunting was the quintessential activity for tens of thousands of years. That simultaneous single-pointed focus and wide lucid field made it possible to download information about nature directly through the pores. If you've been there in rapture, in nature, you know exactly what I'm talking about. David Abram describes this perceptual reciprocity in detail in his book The Spell of the Sensuous. Hunting for an indigenous oral community entails abilities and sensitivities that are very different from those associated with hunting in a technological civilization. The hunter must come close to his prey, not just physically but emotionally, empathically entering into proximity with the animal's way of sensing and experiencing. The native hunter, in effect, must apprentice himself to those animals he would kill through long and careful observation, enhanced at times by ritual identification and mimesis or mimicking, the hunter gradually develops an instinctive knowledge of the habits of his prey. In this state of rapture, things revealed themselves as they really are. The caribou would arrive in dreams to speak of the movements of the herd. People understood, a whole lot of them will tell you, and I mean a whole lot, the language of animals and trees. 
Every hair on the body is a sensory object, as one moves through a bristling world teeming with life and awareness. As Abram says, to listen to the forest is to be listened to by the forest. Nature is aware. There is a seamless blending of individual awareness with forest awareness. Subject and object merge because they're supposed to, because that's how it's supposed to be. Later, in the Indian Upanishads, that type of merging of subject and object would be encapsulated in this verse. O wonder, O wonder, O wonder, I am food, I am food, I am food, and I am the eater of food, I am the eater of food, I am the eater of food. One can't help but wonder if this is a verse that was born directly out of the state of rapture, experienced when walking through the forest, all senses tuned, not sure if one is the hunter or the hunted, and knowing that ultimately in this universe one is both at once. Rapture, then, is survival. It's necessary to walk through the forest this way, all senses tuned, all senses awake, walking for days sometimes, only a handful of berries to eat, only stream water to drink, and every plant becomes a spiral vortex, a point of focus in which to lose one's limited self and to gain knowledge. Have you done this? I'm taking us on this journey as a foundation because it's so fundamental, so primal. It's the arcane substance of the human experience. Rapturous focus permeates mythologies, ritual traditions. In fact, it is really the heart of why human beings do ritual to begin with. Communion, direct communion in order to become the body and blood of the world. A few months ago, I had a conversation with Devdut Patanaik, an Indian mythologist and author who's published over 40 books on the Indian mythic corpus. Our interview will be featured on this podcast as soon as I get around to editing it, which, you know, should be any day now. In the course of the discussion, he said something very interesting. He said, in India, texts are nothing. Now, coming from an author of 40 books referring to a tradition that by some counts has a hundred times more written pages of spiritual text than all of the Abrahamic religions of the world combined, this statement could sound incredibly strange, even off the mark. Of course India cares about texts. It has millions of pages of spiritual text. But the point here is that the text isn't an end unto itself. Like, you know, Bible for Bible's sake. It's a placeholder for something else. And that something else is what? practice, direct lived experience. The texts are sung, chanted, discussed, meditated upon, and used as guides for direct practice. And the practice, more often than not, is to find, again, this state of rapture, of universal permeability and single-pointed focus all in one. This is important. Why? Because a whole lot of the analysis of Indian tradition is textual analysis, and that textual analysis is often done fairly removed from the context of practice. Let's take yoga. When yoga, and I mean the meditative practice of yoga, when yoga arrives on the scene 2,500 years ago or so, it's not arriving through the texts. It didn't trickle down from lofty Sanskrit aphorisms composed by Brahmins with golden quills. Those aphorisms were attached to it later. The Rig Veda, the oldest text of all, is already telling us about the wild-haired ascetic and the rishi that stretches their cord across the void as a figure that predates everything else, certainly predates the written text. So meditative practice is built on a substrate a bedrock of 200,000 years of rapture. It arrives on the breath of Paleolithic hunters deliberately huffing and puffing in time with the horses of the steppes. It is born out of an ancient womb of sympathetic animal magic, of deep trance states, of ritualized passage into the state of sublime single-pointed focus. 
a thousand generations of shamans donning animal skins to perceive the world through the animal eyes. This animal magic still pervades the yogic ethos, which is why yogic masters sit upon tiger skins. Shiva flays the tiger in a demonstration of his yogic power and wears it like his own skin. The trance devotees who receive the power of the goddess are said to be ridden by the goddess's lion. The wild-haired ascetic carries with them the damaru, or the two-sided drum, stretched from animal skin. The carrying of the animal skin in the form of the drum is universal. It is a way of carrying that state of one-pointed animal focus with us at all times. So Kalasso says, quote, How could the invisible return to being visible? By animating the drum. The stretched skin of the animal was the steed. It was the journey, the gilded whirlwind. It led to the place where the grasses roar, where the rushes moan, to the hum of trance. In our modern world of timed yoga classes and high-end meditation retreats and online courses, it's easy to forget the wild-haired ascetic breathing alone in the forest, every pore awake and alive. For yoga was not done in little sterile boxes. Yoga was done in the forest. Yoga was breathing for hours and days and weeks and years, immersed in nature, surrounded by animals surrounded by predators who could eat you, done in time with the thrumming of crickets and the rising of the moon. Yoga is animate, and it is animist. Yakshas, nature spirits, localized goddesses of brook and tree, pervade the yogic cosmos. This is often missed in favor of a yoga that is reduced to written words on a page, and charts and graphs that neatly separate the amkara from the buddhi, from the chitta, from the manas. Now, I know that aspect of yogic history and scholarship is valuable. I'm a text nerd too, obviously. And the scholarly vision of yoga was certainly part of yogic history, but its primary purpose in the beginning was to document, not to be an end unto itself. Texts kept a record of practice traditions whose roots reach back into the Paleolithic, and those practices were deep, deep practices. So deep we don't even have a reference point. Even if we do our pranayam 15 minutes a day or even an hour a day and do our Wim Hof method and take freezing showers, we have zero reference for the states of consciousness which were accessible to those who ate only what was given and lived in the forest and did breath work multiple hours a day. 80 cycles of breathing exercises, each with lengthy holds multiple times per day. What am I getting at here? I'm getting at an inherent nature-based rapture that is deeply present in yoga, that wraps its vines around the sacred texts and devours them in favor of lived experience. I'm getting at a paleolithic shamanic substrate that informs all the meditative traditions of the world. I'm getting at deep states that are difficult for us now to fathom. I'm focusing on this because it is ignored, and the reason it's ignored are important to look at. If you take a 200-hour yoga teacher training from a yoga school that has anything resembling a spiritual aspect to it and is at all concerned with yogic history, and trust me, there are a whole lot that aren't, chances are good that you'll study some of the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, around 2,000 years old, the first texts that arrive on the scene that are actual practice manuals of what is directly termed yoga. And more specifically, if you take this 200-hour training, you probably study portions of Book 1 and 2 of the Yoga Sutras, the Samadhipada and the Sadhanapada. You learn about vrittis, those bothersome churnings of the mind, and you learn about the true nature of the seer, abiding in a conscious presence that is beyond those turnings. You learn that the posture should be steady and supple at the same time. A favorite passage in yoga trainings is it's the only passage that actually addresses physical posture. You learn about the foundational practices around lifestyle and the types of meditation, dharana and dhyana. You may learn about the basics of Samkhya philosophy, purusha, prakriti, the three gunas, the five elements. And it's all fairly neat and tidy. It's almost, one could say, rational, 
all spelled out in immaculate Sanskrit. It shows us how meditation makes sense. It's about quieting the mind, being more aware. Science says it's great for us, right? Calming effects, parasympathetic nervous system activation and such. And maybe that's our study of the Yoga Sutras. Maybe it goes a little deeper into samadhi, this sense of absorptive consciousness in which subject and object merge into one. But yeah, it all seems to fit with our modern worldview. And then, all of a sudden, along comes the third book of the Yoga Sutras. And it's a little different. And it's saying things like, if your mind becomes one with an elephant, then you'll obtain the strength of an elephant. It's saying that people can learn to disappear, and possibly fly, and shrink to the size of an atom, and have knowledge of the language of plants and animals. And then all of a sudden, the modern mind goes, Huh? Wait a minute. Where does my 10-minute mindfulness meditation for better job performance fit into this vision of wild-haired ascetics covered in ash and carrying animal skin drums, shrinking themselves to the size of atoms? And there's a disconnect. Because we maybe have a vision of meditation as this fairly rationalist endeavor. And what's being talked about here are what we would file under the category of supernatural powers. And that can make people uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. But it's worth going beyond that discomfort. Because right in the heart of the third book, the wild-haired ascetic still lives, beating his two-sided drum. There the grasses roar, and the rushes moan, and the sound is felt in every pore. Right in the heart of the discussion of the extraordinary powers is an animate, rapturous vision that is concurrent with the experience of human ritual culture dating back in an unbroken line to the Paleolithic. You could say that this is the animist chapter of the Yoga Sutras, which is precisely why it's ignored. Because, you know, animism is a lower philosophy, and the grand religious traditions are higher, and there's the crux of the problem. Yet these elucidated powers, these fine, fine aspects of the state of rapture, this play between the forest and the hunter, the eater and the eaten, remain as relevant as ever. This time on the podcast, we dive into the vibhutipada to find the animate heart of yogic tradition, rapturous focus and extraordinary powers, breathing life into the third book of the Yoga Sutras, today on The Emerald. Vibhutipada, it literally means the chapter on ash or residue, the chapter on the powers that are the residual result of deep meditative practice, the chapter which throws the wrench in any rationalist interpretations of the Yoga Sutras that might see meditation as rather clean and dry. It talks about pole stars and elephants and shining jewels. It invokes energetics that have been precious to human trance ritualists all along, expanding, shrinking, shining, vanishing. So why is this chapter so often skipped over? Well, because it's uncomfortable for many people. It doesn't seem to fit with the grand vision of the earlier chapters, which are in their own way neatly philosophic. The first two could sit next to Descartes or Derrida or Thomas Aquinas. And then the third book is talking about speaking with plants and animals. You know, it kind of reeks of what we sometimes call superstition. It pokes at all those parts of us that resist all things religious. It makes us ask, I mean, were these guys selling snake oil? You know, hey, practice this and you'll be able to fly. Practice this and you'll be impervious to harm. You'll be able to read minds. It's a time-honored religious trick, right? Trying to entice people with descriptions of being all-powerful. Certainly there is a trap in entering into a practice simply for the powers that will result from doing that practice. But this misses a whole lot of what's going on here. And when we brush this chapter aside because it's uncomfortable, we get into dangerous territory. 
the territory of labeling things that we don't understand as superstition, of categorizing low philosophies versus high philosophies, because the criticisms are generally the criticisms of a mind that is deeply unfamiliar with the states of consciousness being described in the Vibhutipada. The criticisms are of a mind that has been systematically torn away from its foundation of rapture and sees things mostly in terms of concepts. This view underestimates the power and centrality of states of trance consciousness to the human narrative, and few, if any of us, have really been to the place that the Yakut shaman will tell us they travel to without giving it a second thought, the place where they shrink to the size of an atom. So, let's dive in. Here we go from the beginning. Dharana, meditative focus, is the act of fixing one's concentration on an object. An object. So, yeah, if you're at St. John's College, maybe your professor gives the example of a table. Fix one's concentration on a table. Does the table have inherent tableness? I've heard the table philosophy discussion before, even from some yogic teachers and historic figures I respect. And if you're a philosophy buff, maybe you have too. And immediately, all the vibrant anima is lost in favor of some theoretical discussion about fixing concentration on a table, something that no one has ever had any cause to do. I mean, let's pause for a moment and remember... The author of these sutras is often depicted as a snake spirit from the waist down. So let's choose something a little more alive. A single caribou among a river of caribou. One shining point among a swirling river of antlers and steamy breath. Or perhaps one reverberating note from a sitar string. Dhyana is when that fixed focus endures over time and so becomes a state of flow. The note sustains and becomes an ocean that receives all rivers and gives birth to all clouds. There is a seamless flow between herd and hunter. Samadhi is when there is only the object. Only the object shines forth. The hunter becomes the caribou. Only the luminous antlered being shines Breath, caribou, spear, all seemed joined as one thing that day on the tundra. Samyama is all three in one. The whole trinity in one. The one who focuses, the flow of focus and the object of focus merging together. Past, present, future. Subject, verb, object. Eater, eating, and eaten. All one. And from the mastery of Samyama comes the splendor, the radiance of deep insight. This Samyama is a deep root, the text says, the inner limb of consciousness. But even it is external relative to something even deeper, something seedless, something beyond. We'll come back to that later. For now, let's say Samyama is what I described at the beginning of this podcast. Rapture, totally focused on the specific, yet transported into the universal at the same time. This rapturous focus, in its sublime triple aspect, is the heart of the human ritual experience. It's why the vision quest was undertaken. It's why people in the Kalahari dance until they convulse and their noses start to bleed. Was it easier to achieve before written words? Before smartphones? Before the rise of empirical observation? in which we were torn out of the womb of nature in favor of becoming some type of imaginary outside observer? Was it easier to achieve when we sustained long periods of involuntary fasting and weather extremes and prolonged vigorous exercise and extended time in the wilderness? Absolutely it was easier to achieve. There's no question about it. Samyama had a golden age and it's called the Paleolithic era when we didn't need to write books about it. It was, it is, rapture. 
What's happened now so far removed from the primacy of nature and rapture is that samadhi dwells in the realm of concepts, and within that there are a whole lot of misconceptions about what it is and how to get there. So here's a little parenthetical journey into common misconceptions about samyama or samadhi. The first is the idea that it's easily attainable. Like, every time you go to a music festival and zone out for a little bit and chant a few ohms, that's it. That's samadhi or samyama. I've had yoga students tell me about their lengthy, day-long samadhis. And that's the precise place in the story where the Zen master would come out and smack the student with a stick. I mean, who knows? Everyone has their own experience, and I'm certainly not the arbiter. But it does need to be emphasized that samadhi, rapturous focus, focus beyond focus, especially in a world in which people can't sit still for 10 minutes without looking at their phones, is not easy to attain. But yeah, someone who's never been out of their house dips their toe in a puddle and thinks it's the ocean. Bilbo thinks the first hill he sees is the lonely mountain itself. Just because we had a little sweet dip in the waters of consciousness doesn't mean we were in deep rapture. And then there's the idea that samadhi is an idea. We think of focus in terms of concepts and thoughts, or in terms of our ability to digest information from words and on a page. This is something far juicier. This is something that breathes. This is the grasses roaring and the rushes moaning, every poor awake. Samadhi is not an idea. You don't think about oneness and you're one. One commentary on the Hatha Pradipika says that intellectual brilliance is not necessary in order to hear the divine sound. And this is where it's important to remember that the texts are references. What is ultimately going to drive the yogi to samadhi is going there through practice again and again and again and again. And then there's the idea that samadhi is unattainable. We tend to put samadhi on an unreachable pedestal. Whatever you experienced, it certainly wasn't samadhi. And then we also tend to assign it a status that's perhaps far more grandiose than it should be. Samadhi is this refined, lofty state of meditative enlightenment. And whatever those Paleolithic hunters or sun dancers or vision questers are experiencing, that can't be samadhi. It's far too earthy to be samadhi. This samadhi is not defined enough through charts and graphs. That messy stuff is all about the powers of nature rather than truly being the extinguishing of the individual self into seedless absorption. And trust me, this attitude exists among the self-appointed gatekeepers of samadhi, many of whom may not have spent much time in samadhi themselves. For anyone who gets too lofty about samadhi, it's worth remembering that Patanjali himself says you can get there through inherited abilities or through plant medicines. It's not just the perfect meditators who get there. It's a very achievable and navigable state that humans used to navigate with far greater regularity. And meanwhile, the San people of the Kalahari have no lofty texts, yet they can describe the architecture of the state of absorptive consciousness with far more accuracy than 99% of yogis out there. They describe it in even more detail than Patanjali does, in fact. But most yogis, and even yoga scholars, simply don't know this. When the one-pointedness of heart-mind is reached, then there is connection to a substrate, a primal consciousness that remains no matter the shifting of externals around it. And from this substrate, this deep root of samyama, grow the extraordinary powers. For example, understanding the language of all beings, invisibility, from focusing on an elephant all the powers of an elephant, the ability to read hearts and minds, knowledge of past and future births, knowledge of all realms, knowledge of the divine architecture and movement of the celestial bodies, full knowledge of the subtle anatomy and physiology of the body, eradication of hunger and thirst, enhanced sensory perception, divine hearing, flight, vision of the subtle energies, the consciousness and body become like a diamond, or from an intuitive flash of brilliance, knowledge of everything. Everything. So let's come back to the whole elephant thing for a minute. The Shambhala Classics translation by Chip Hartranft says, focusing with perfect discipline on the powers of an elephant, one acquires those powers. Now, here's what I'm getting at. I mean, translating Patanjali is difficult, and I don't envy anyone the task. But this translation reduces this to a cerebral exercise, 
focus with perfect discipline. It sounds like a ballet class. It ignores what we started with on this episode, the rapturous aspect of focus. So try this instead through Samyama, the same rapturous focus through which the Paleolithic hunter became utterly one with his prey, through which he gained animal vision. One becomes utterly one with the caribou. One can see like a caribou, breathe like a caribou, move with the caribou, know their subtle movements and intentions. You can gain the caribou's heart and eyes. Now we can maybe understand it a little bit more. It's not saying, yeah, just meditate on an elephant and you'll be as strong as an elephant. It's invoking the entire foundational experience of sympathetic animal trance, which has been practiced by human beings almost certainly for hundreds of thousands of years. The eland dancers who acquire eland potency, the turtle and deer dancers of the southwestern pueblos who ride the sound of the rattle and the repetitive beat of their feet upon the earth into the state of trance, even the Nordic berserker who dons the bear skin and sees the world through bear eyes. The eland, the great antelope for the son of the Kalahari, contains profound spiritual potency, so much so that one of the words for eland is the same word for the trance ritual. So the animal is the doorway to the trance. The animal is the samadhi. I had a kung fu teacher a long time ago who would, when practicing tiger-style kung fu, see his own body covered in stripes. This is what we're getting at here. It's not conceptual. Tiger style. Tiger style. Tiger style. When we treat it conceptually and simultaneously assume that anything yogic or Sanskritic falls into a totally different category than the experience of the deer dancer or the Paleolithic hunter, probably a loftier category, we rob ourselves of a whole foundation of human experience that can be incredibly valuable in understanding samadhi states. And this is where again we remember that the author of this text is a serpent spirit from the waist down. His foundation is the animate force, and the practitioners of these practices are covered in ashes, and garland themselves in the seeds of trees, and sit on animal hides, and spend years and years and years in the forest. There is a conflation that happens between words, ideas, and objects. When we pierce beyond that through samyama, we can understand the language of all things. The language of all things. This is the Vibhutipada attempting to put to rest the detached and theoretical Aristotelian debates about whether tables have an inherent tableness and whether table is an idea that exists beyond the material form of a table, by directly urging practitioners to get out of the headspace where words and ideas and objects overlap and confuse a direct experience of reality, and find instead the state of rapturous focus, the primal intuitive reciprocity with nature. This primal reciprocity is fundamental across indigenous cultures. The way of seeing in the forest is a state of rapturous focus, in which the language of all things becomes clear. Vital information is not learned from removing oneself from the experiment. It is found in immersing oneself in the experiment entirely, which is why Western science assumes that indigenous plant knowledge comes from years upon years of trial and error. Hey, let's mix that up in a pod and eat that plant and see what happens, and whoops, I guess it was poisonous. Whereas the people who actually have the knowledge will tell you that it comes from talking to the plants. Culture upon culture, in fact, speaks of the language of the trees, the stones, and the streams. The Koyukon people in the Arctic listen to the calls of loons and owls. For them, the owls speak prophecies and certain sparrows bring stories of grief. Zuni elders say they learned what they know of the animals thousands of years ago from the animals themselves. 
language itself, alphabets and songs for many cultures were gifts of the trees. So central is the relationship between the animate world and language. Odin's journey to find the sacred language of the runes, which he sees in a rapturous vision mirrored in the infinite pool at the roots of the world tree, comes to him from a nine-day ordeal, hanging upside down, without food or shelter, in the trance state. The true language of things is not a set of abstract placeholders, but direct, intuitive, perceptive insight into what Tyson Yunkaporta calls the pattern. That pattern is mirrored across creation. If one thing speaks, all things speak. And the knowledge of that speech comes not from some theoretical textbook of table ease, but from sitting with the stones over time and directly beholding the pattern. So yeah, there's nothing outlandish at all about suggesting that the heightened perception through deep trance practice could lead to a heightened ability to understand the shifting, lilting speech of the natural world. In fact, if human cultural history is the barometer, then saying animals and trees are deaf and dumb is the truly outlandish worldview. Here's David Abram again, quote, And indeed, it is only when a culture shifts its participation to printed letters that the stones fall silent. Only as our senses transfer their animating magic to the written word do the trees become mute, the other animals dumb. comedian who went on to do a lot of great movies did a whole comedy bit where he says I used to get small he was using it as a way to talk about getting high right I used to get small I knew I shouldn't get small when I'm driving but uh, I was driving around the other day and a cop pulls me over and he goes hey are you small I said, no, I'm tall, I'm tall. He said, well, I'm going to have to measure you. I got a little test they gave you. It's a balloon. And if you can get inside of it, they know you're small. He's joking, yeah? Why do we say getting high? We might as well say getting small. And at the same time, he's perhaps unknowingly pointing to a fundamental fact about heightened states of consciousness the experience of size distortions. That night, beneath the stars, the universe seemed vast, and I was a speck of sand. But at the same time, it was like the whole world was within me. So I was vast as well as small. You know what I mean? So the Vibhutipada says, from that samyama comes the ability to become small, to shrink, For many cultures, the specific ability to become small is a prerequisite for entry into the spirit world. From David Lewis Williams, quote, This journey to the spirit world involves physical changes. Old Kshau said that a shaman had to make himself very small. When you arrive at God's place, you make yourself small. You have to become small. Lewis Williams concludes that changes in size are often experienced in trance states. So the Yakut and Tunga shamans of Siberia journey into trance and climb the world tree and reach the uppermost nest where they gain a grand view of the whole universe. And there at the top of the world tree they are suckled by a white reindeer and the more milk they drink, the smaller they get. So the shaman has this view of everything and at the same time they themselves are getting smaller. They see infinity and they are getting smaller. Sound familiar? It's the state of rapture. One small point of focus shrinking towards center, and the whole universe expands within the circle of perception both at the same time. In fact, the more the seer drinks from the eternal fountain, from that cascade of oneness here in the form of reindeer milk, the more insignificant the needs of the day-to-day self become until the small self disappears entirely in favor of a view that is universal. So before our modern minds go all, honey, I shrunk the kids on this verse, it's worth feeling into what becoming small really means, how spatial reality changes in this state of deep rapturous focus. 
and how the things that seem so big to us no longer seem so big anymore, and the needs of the small self shrink, and we feel like infinite grains of sand. So the Katupanishad says, It should be known that the heart, that very place that lies one finger below the throat and one finger above the navel, is the great abode of the universe. And the Chandogya Upanishad says, This soul of mine within the heart is smaller than a grain of rice. This soul of mine within the heart is greater than the earth, greater than the atmosphere, greater than the sky, greater than these worlds. This is the soul of mine within the heart. This is God, smaller than a grain of rice. Numerous yogic texts, including the Yoga Sutras and many of the Hindu and Buddhist tantras, speak of the body or the consciousness becoming like a crystal or jewel, the diamond body, crystalline consciousness. This state of sublime transparency that practitioners achieve so that the consciousness is at once luminous and clear, yet at the same time deeply structurally sound. The jewel body can be imagined as qualitative, a mind that bears the qualities of a jewel. You might have teachers or friends who are jewels in your life, or sometimes people shine or they seem so clear, or they have a firmness to them, unshakable, steady, impervious, like adamant, jewel bodies. And this vision of transformation into something crystalline pervades traditional cultures and cosmologies, so the Aranda shaman, in their initiation process, goes into a state of rapturous focus in which they are slain and then resurrected and their innards are replaced with quartz crystals. Tyson Yonkaporta tells of a clever woman who is transformed into a piece of quartz. As David Lewis Williams says in Deciphering Ancient Minds, the mention of quartz is particularly interesting because worldwide quartz is associated with altered states of consciousness. Shamans perceive in quartz the light that they experience inwardly. Which is why one San shaman says, the quartz knocks me out. Meaning, just as the animal is the samadhi, in this case the jewel is the samadhi, the consciousness, in trance, feels like a jewel, and the jewel transports into the state of consciousness. I'm going to jump back once more to our theoretical conversation on tables for just a second, because this is really important. Teachers who interpret these texts on samadhi, on the object, seem to assume that any object will do. It's fine to talk about a table as the object, because really Patanjali is just talking theoretically about any old object. No, he's not. He's giving us very specific objects, because these specific objects correlate directly to states of deep meditative rapture. The object is a crystal because the trance state is crystalline. The object is a wild animal because the trance state is the assumption of the animal powers. The object is the pole star because all objects in the sky wheel around that object, which is a primary feature experienced in trance as well. One shining point at the center of a whirling vortex. These are not randomly chosen objects. They're chosen from felt, illuminated, direct experience. Okay, that's more than enough about tables. Back to crystals. Michael Harner writes, People as distant from one another as the aborigines of eastern Australia and the Yuman speakers of southern California and adjacent Baja California consider the quartz crystal living, or a live rock. The widespread employment of quartz crystals in shamanism spans thousands of years. In California, for example, quartz crystals have been found in archaeological sites and prehistoric burials dating back as far as 8,000 years. Harner explains how some shamans in training had a piece of quartz sung into their foreheads so that they'd be able to see right into things. And Colosso says quartz crystals were positioned in key places along the shamanic initiate's body. So you have the Yoga Sutras of India, the San people of the Kalahari, the Aborigines, the Chumash, all equating crystalline structures with illuminated consciousness. What I'm getting at here is that this isn't a metaphor. It's not like any metaphor will do. It's invoking a direct experience of crystalline textures, surfaces, and illuminations while in the deep rapturous state. 
Have you ever been walking in the high desert at twilight and found a patch of quartz? I know of a really good one up the hill from Ojo Caliente Springs in New Mexico. It's about 30 yards across. Have you felt that incandescence, that glow? Did it seep into your mind? Did it remind you of something? Did it transport you? The inherent nature of consciousness itself is said to be as a jewel, as a crystal, say the Dzogchen traditions. So the quartz transports us to this inherent state. The mind steeps in its own luminosity, transparency, clarity, and adamantine architecture. So these powers that the Vibhutipada speaks of, these siddhis or perfections, they sound fantastical to us, of course. They raise the skeptic's eyebrow. But for many cultures, these siddhis are spoken about openly and matter-of-factly. In the yogic texts, many extraordinary powers are mentioned as flippantly as if they were byproducts. Keith Dowman, in his wonderful book on the Mahasiddhas, Masters of Enchantment, describes these powers and the sages who attain them, quote, if a yogi can walk through walls, fly in the sky, heal the sick, turn water into wine, levitate, or read minds, they may gain the title of Siddha. Those same practitioners have a crazy glint in their eyes, cover themselves in ashes, bring tears to the eyes with their songs, calm street mongrels by their very presence, and talk with the birds. They gain, says Dauman, the power to walk through matter, the power of materialization and dematerialization, the power of third-eye vision, the power to read minds, the power to locate both physical and metaphysical treasures, the power of speed-walking, the power to synthesize the pill of immortality. Yeah, speed-walking, lungam it's called in Tibetan, a breathing practice that the great sage Milarepa supposedly did while in a meditation cave that had taken him months to reach on foot and then made the return journey after he had perfected the practice in a matter of days. And this isn't just ancient history. The practice of inner heat meditation, or tummo, is well documented and verified. I've been to a valley in Ladakh, in northernmost India, where the monks perfect this practice, and during a midwinter festival demonstrate their inner heat capabilities by meditating all night on a frozen river wearing nothing but thin cotton cloth. This is something you can see today if you look for it. And as recently as 1874, there are official government records about the dematerialization of one Swami Ramalinga, who went into a state of divine rapture in the great Shiva temple at Chidambaram and never returned. Ramalinga was a great devotee, as Father Francis Tiso explains, of the Tirumandaram. Quote, I was truly and completely changed into the very substance of the Almighty, who pervaded every atom of my body. The mighty and benign powers came under my control. All these are, of course, the gifts of the Lord, the universal dancer. Now, I'm not going to make any definitive statement about these external manifestations of the extraordinary powers and whether they do or do not exist. Much can be understood about the extraordinary powers from understanding states of consciousness. But does that mean there are or are not people who can fly or shrink or dematerialize? Well, as Dauman says, quote, These powers may be interpreted literally or figuratively according to the faith and understanding of the student. Thus, the power to walk through walls can be explained literally as a magical feat or figuratively to demonstrate the nature of reality as a dream where all things are experienced as light and space. What I'm more interested in is how the modern, supposedly rational mind butts up against things that sound fantastical, or that cannot be scientifically explained. It's easy to start talking about superstition, but what do you do when an entire culture, and not just one culture but many cultures, accepts these things as absolutely verifiable and true? Do we just say, you're wrong and I'm right? To me, it hits at some very deep revelations about the nature of experience, and how we postmodern types are only willing to call real that which takes place in what we call objective reality, where for many people, for much of history, there is not such a stark and fabricated line between subjective and objective, and what is most real is that which is experienced subjectively within the textures of consciousness. 
In that deep trance, the whole world expanded. I shrank as everything else grew. I was one with the caribou. I knew the hearts and minds of all the people I encountered. I shone. I was transparent before creation. I could travel anywhere I wished. We can understand the powers this way. And then I'll just say that there are things that are difficult to explain if you haven't seen the pattern, the harmonic pattern of nature, and these same things are fairly simple to explain if you have. Consider this story. When I was 22, I took part in a funeral, a cremation ceremony for Ngagpa Yeshe Dorje, the Dalai Lama's personal weather maker. I had known him for several years and had taken many teachings from him. He was a character. A yogi, his hair bound in a topknot, a little metal vajra right at his crown. A pair of bottle-thick glasses made his wild eyes look even wilder. Every time he came to New Mexico, it poured with rain. And you know, it doesn't pour with rain a whole lot in New Mexico. One time I received a six-hour black dakini empowerment from him in the midst of a cataclysmic thunder and lightning storm. Hail, flashes, drums, boom symbols, nectar, good stuff. When he passed, he was cremated on native land. His body was seated upright for the cremation in meditation posture and wrapped in layers of cloth and scarves. When the palanquin bearing his body was taken out of the truck, on that clear and windless day, a sudden gust of wind arose. Not just a gust, a spiraling torrent of wind, a mini cyclone that was centered literally right around his body and that uncannily followed the procession exactly as it made its way towards the stacked wood of the pyre. And perhaps we hear that and we hear coincidence. And perhaps there is a pattern to how things coincide. Either way, his body was certainly made of flesh and bone. The wrapping cloths burned away in the pyre, and there was what remained, a blackened skeleton seated in meditation posture amid the flames, amid the swirling winds of time, space, consciousness. Now, Here's where the Vibhutipada gets really interesting, as if it wasn't interesting already. Remember how I said that Vibhuti means residue, like the extraordinary powers are kind of, in a way, side effects? And remember that there was that verse I said we'd get to later, on how this state of rapturous focus is actually external to something even deeper? Well, after going through all this effort to establish these fantastical powers, Patanjali then basically says, yeah, but don't get too caught up in them. The ultimate goal is beyond all that. The ultimate goal is kaivalya, the seedless state, total liberation, or nirvana, extinction. So while you may gain deep powers within the natural world, verse 37 says, To the externalized mind these may look like accomplishments, but actually they are obstacles or distractions. So there's something deeper than the samyama that results in powers, something beyond that isn't born from anywhere has no qualities, no powers, no results, no karma to it at all. And ultimately, that's the real goal. So, yeah, there's something very beautiful and foresighted about this. It's illuminating one of the primary traps of practice. It's warning against doing yoga simply to gain power. And trust me, there are people who practice yoga, even in this day and age, in order to accumulate powers. They may not even know it, but it's actually pretty common. This could be as simple as practicing so they can have energetic sway over people, to shine so that they're more attractive to others. It could be to parlay their yoga practice, or at least images of their yoga practice, into a multi-million dollar career. That, too, should be examined in light of the verses on the powers. 
and there are deeper examples of people who, in the guise of Tantra, are really participating in what could be called energetic manipulation, using the it's-all-oneness of it all to justify a lot of deeply damaging behavior, or seeking to use their practice to become really proficient lovers, or trying to be kind of like yogic superheroes. This might sound weird, but trust me, it exists. That's why I'm mentioning it. I'm mentioning it because it's there. And the minute we veer from practice for the sake of being more present and loving into practice for the sake of getting some type of power out of it, well then, we've veered. So there's good reason to heed the warning on the powers being distractions. But there's something else going on here too. You see, whether or not you view these powers as secondary or less than the state of complete transcendence depends ultimately on what the goal is. And at the time when the Yoga Sutras and Buddhism came around, this goal of practice as total eradication of the individual, total transcendence of nature, nothingness in a way, or at least extinction, which is what nirvana means, this was a pretty new thing. Let's put it this way, for the Paleolithic hunter, the ability to enter into a sympathetic animal trance, to achieve samyama to better know the herd, was a survival mechanism. So it behooves the hunter whose success is measured not by his ability to detach from the world, but by his ability to obtain food for his mouths to feed, to remain in the realm of animal magic and speaking to the trees. It behooves him to stay in the samyama of spear and caribou. But this new wave of practitioners wasn't interested in survival. They were interested in extinction, death of the individual. It behooves them, the monk or the renunciate, who wants the total eradication of the self, to be beyond the world, to go into seedless samadhi. In a meditative culture that centers extinction, then, you don't want the powers. In a worldly culture that is concerned with survival, oh boy, do you. So why at this juncture in human history do we have a text that basically says, yeah, the shamanic powers are great, but there's something more? Well, because the world had changed in a way that made the notion of this greater something even possible. Hunter-gatherer societies don't tend to have doctrines of transcendence. In other words, you won't find many, if any, hunter-gatherer cultures tell you that the world is an illusion that you need to escape from, as began to be expounded in certain Indian traditions after the growth of urbanization, or that matter is dead, as Aristotle would come to proclaim. Why? Because for a hunter-gatherer, there is no luxury to proclaim the world as illusion. Everything, up to and including survival, is dependent upon direct interaction with the forces of nature which must be seen as real. This is why hunter-gatherers also don't tend to have the monastic class. Living is too valuable. The doctrines of illusion and transcendence arise at a time when urbanization and large-scale agriculture made it possible for possibly the first time to have what you could call a transcendent class, expendable people who weren't necessary for the survival of the society, people who had the luxury of being able to renounce and go off and transcend. So this point about the true or deepest samadhi being beyond or above a direct interaction with the natural powers, beyond the hunter's sublime focus, is important because it represents a pivotal juncture in spiritual history, and it also represents attitudes towards the natural powers. Let's return to this vision of Patanjali as a serpent from the waist down, and a scholar of grammar from the waist up. Now this takes on a whole new meaning. He's rooted in the animate, and moving towards the philosophical or literary, just as India was at this time. And this text is doing a very interesting thing. It's acknowledging animism, yet also saying don't get too caught up in it. It's foretelling, in a way, what's to come. The move away from animism towards more urban philosophies. Now, Indian tradition is deeply profound in that it manages to maintain its animist roots, its ties to nature, even as it grows more and more literary. This is something I've always loved about India, and in practice, the traditions of India are deeply animist. Turn a corner, find a roadside shrine, and you will meet animism alive and well in India for hundreds of millions of people. And yet there is this tension in certain Indian schools of thought as well, in which the transcendent is seen as higher or better than or more civilized than the animate. 
This perceived hierarchy bloomed in the colonial era, when Indian tradition came face to face with British Christianity. Certain Indian texts, mostly the ones that spoke of the transcendent vision of divinity, above the world, not of it, these made the cut and others did not. The tantric traditions, which had deeply reclaimed animism, were sidelined altogether. And so the animist, as she always is, is seen as somehow less than. Seedless samyama is better than samyama that is in a state of exchange with the powers of nature. Trance is not an appropriate translation of samadhi, say certain commentaries on the Buddhist texts, most likely because they were trying to distinguish themselves from the goddess cultures all around them that utilized trance every day. And are they really that distinct? Really? Who's been there and charted the territory? Who really knows? Who really knows the world of the San Shaman? Who really knows the states that the Pueblo Turtle Dancer has navigated? And in this vision, then, Brahman, the universal godhead, is more palatable than blood-drinking, milk-dripping fertility goddesses. To certain palates, that is. Within a couple hundred years of the composition of the Vibhutipada, Across the Arabian Sea and into Greece, Plato's Phaedrus discussed this very tension between animism and so-called higher philosophies. In the book, we meet Socrates and his pupil Phaedrus, who is encouraging the old philosopher to take a walk out into the woods for their dialogues. David Abram paints the scene beautifully. Socrates basically says, I don't want to go into the woods. I'm a lover of learning, he says. Trees and open country won't teach me anything, but men and cities do. This is 2,400 years ago, and you already have a high philosopher dismissing the idea that nature has anything to teach. It's a funny little scene, the old city scholar griping about going into the woods, and I'd laugh if it weren't such a clear glimpse into the pain and destruction that this exact attitude foretold. And yet, the dialogue progresses, until finally Socrates acquiesces that the first prophecy, the first teaching, came from what? an oak tree. We have to be really careful about labeling one system of philosophy or practice or worldview higher than the other. We have to be really careful about labeling one state of consciousness higher or better than the other. We have to be careful about labeling Kaivalya, absolute freedom, extinction, as better or higher than states of trance that have been achieved by people in animist trance rituals for thousands upon thousands of years. We have to pay attention to how we categorize these systems unconsciously, even if we think we hold them as equals. In a world in which doctrines of transcendence ultimately led humanity towards a complete deanimation of matter, a complete deanimation of the world itself, and therefore a justification for large-scale environmental destruction, there's a whole lot within the understanding of the animate that is vitally necessary for us, especially now. There are textures within the Vibhutipada's descriptions of the powers that we might want to steep in rather than skip over. The luminosities it describes, the heightened awareness, the reciprocity with the natural world, the dynamism of felt experience it conveys, these are needed now. If the emphasis becomes entirely ongoing beyond, and the domain of the animate is dismissed as just superstition or a preoccupation with the supernatural, if we skip over it because it challenges modern sensibilities and makes us a little uncomfortable, then we risk losing, as we have, a massive chunk of our inherent vocabulary for interacting with nature and for knowing our own consciousness. Likewise, if we file the yogic teachings into the philosophical and theoretical, we risk losing the animate heart of it. We lose the long-haired ascetic deep in the forest, practicing all day immersed in the forces of nature. So for me, I say, let's rediscover the living breath of practice. Go ahead, shrink to the size of an atom or behold the world in a grain of sand, or heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. Come, let's see the world through caribou eyes, find again the extraordinary powers.
this episode, as long as it is, contains reference to lots and lots and lots of texts and articles, and these include The Spell of the Sensuous, David Abram, The Celestial Hunter by Roberto Colasso. It just came out, and don't miss it. Supernormal by Dean Radin. The Vibhutipada, third chapter of the Yoga Sutras from the original Sanskrit, and then also through the following translations, Chip Hartranft, Nikolai Bachman, and Swami Satchitananda. The New York Times crossword puzzle. The Rig Veda. The Taittiriya Chandogya and Katupanishads. Phaedrus by Plato. The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's Get Small. Rainbow Body and Resurrection by Father Francis Tiso. The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. Deciphering Ancient Minds by David Lewis Williams. Auguries of Innocence by William Blake. Sand Talk by Tyson Yonkaporta, highly recommended. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, starring Rick Moranis. And, of course, Tiger Style, Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to Fuck With by the Wu-Tang Clan. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoyed today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Tiger style. Tiger style. Yo. Tiger style. Tiger style.